U of L, and um, that's that's the, how we know him. And most of you are generally aware that the McConnell Center is a scholarship and an enrichment program designed to keep Kentucky's best and brightest here. And also uh, puts on some phenomenal speakers, um, most recently Justice Amy Coney Barrett. But um, it's much more than that. Under Gary's leadership, the McConnell Center now has a civics program designed to nurture, train, and, 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 and help Kentucky's social studies teachers by taking them for on-site learning to places like Mount Rushmore and Williamsburg. In addition, Gary has formed a partnership with the Pentagon whereby he puts on a strategic broadening seminar every year and the Army sends 40 mid-career soldiers to U of L for intense training on the Constitution and leadership and basically the, um, the underpinnings of the democracy that they're charged to defend. So that's been a great program. Um, Gary's an internationally known um, expert on the Electoral College and fields calls from media outlets all over the world, including Al Jazeera. And, um, <laughs> and he's, a, he's a prolific writer, lecturer, um, editor, and I would say if you like what you hear today, go to the McConnell Center website and you can, can um, enjoy his podcasts, his um, study guides for tackling books like Plato's Republic and the like. And um, we're just, just glad you're here and so appreciative, Gary, to, to have you speak to us. <clears throat> Thank you, Bridget. I would ask if this was on, but it's clearly on. Um, Bridget has been a, uh, a pillar in uh, my life. She, uh, all that stuff she said that we do at the McConnell Center, she's chairman of the board uh, of the McConnell Center, so uh, she's got a vested interest in bragging about me, I guess. And, uh, and I had no idea she was bringing me, she started, uh, you know, I thought I was coming to a small church group or something, and then she started sending invitations, and I see, and we have a federal judge sitting here now, for crying out loud, John. Um, but worst of all, the pr talk about pressure, my life insurance agent is here. <laughs> uh, I don't know where he is now, Bob, well, there, uh, Bob's over here, so, I mean, talk about, yeah, that's real pressure. Uh, I pointed out that I was going to have a chicken salad for lunch, so... Uh, uh, don't raise my premiums. Um, really honored to be here uh, with you uh, today. What a beautiful campus you have. What a beautiful, beautiful church. Um, I've heard about the, your church for a long time, and, uh, but I've never had a chance to be here. So it's really, uh, really a privilege, really, uh, really beautiful. Um, today, I have a whole lot I want to say, and I ended up, when after I eventually, Caroline was really great about giving me all the details, I just didn't pay attention to them. So when I realized I had a half an hour and not an hour and 15 minutes, like a class or a two-hour seminar, my morning was ripping, shredding, throwing on the floor um, to try to get down to something I can get, I can get done in, uh, in a half hour, um, because she, was, she pressed me on how important everybody is here, uh, and how you get back to work, so... Uh, I, will, uh, I will endeavor to say something worthwhile um, and um, figure out how to use this microphone. I am not Britney Spears. Uh, is it Matthew? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, this is very awkward, but I'm going to figure it out. Um, this is something George Washington would have never done, by the way. So. <laughs> Uh, this is why he never really gave many addresses. He actually, his addresses we're going to talk about today were written. Oh, that's better. I think I figured, I figured it out. Um, I want to talk about endings today. Uh, and it might be, um, that might seem simple when I, when I say it, but I want, to, I want you to focus on it for just a moment. We all tell our kids, we've all heard, you, you don't have a second chance at a first impression, right? We all know that. We've all told people that. We've always lived by that. Uh, that lesson in life, and, that's, and it's true, but I want to focus on the other end and submit to you that it may be more important actually often how we end things than how we begin things. Um, think of uh, relationships you have been in. I mean, how many relationships you've been in end poorly, um, and, uh, and that's what you focus on, obsess on the rest of your life, right? Not the good times, not the, uh, not the fun times, but how, how things um, 
went sour at the end. How many political figures do great things in their political life and then end up in a scandal of some sort? And what do we focus on? Always the scandal. It ruins everything that comes before. How we end things is really vitally important. And it's something George Washington knew. Washington was a master of ending and ending things uh, things well. Washington, if you, uh, I could, well, if I don't bore you too terribly, you can have me back in a few years and, uh, and uh, we can talk about Washington and lots of different, well, all the things I left on the floor we can talk about. Uh, I'll save them. But uh, we can talk, we could talk about Washington in the theater. Washington was an avid theater goer. There's a particular play called Cato, a tragedy, which um, fundamentally changed his life. Uh, gives shape to his life in so many ways. I won't have time to talk about that today. But just understand that one of the way he approached life, the way he approached leadership, was to approach it as if he were on a stage. He was an actor on a stage. Part of that was knowing how to come in onto the stage. Part of that was how to properly leave the stage. And Washington made that uh, he became a master, uh, a master of it. So we could talk about various things. We could talk about how he left the presidency after two terms and set a precedent that lasted from 1796 uh, up until 1940, right? We could talk about uh, his farewell address, which was, I was going to talk about it. It's on the floor at home. But you should read the farewell address, 1796. If you haven't, read it. It's read every year on the floor of the United States Senate. Nobody pays attention to it, but it is read. Um, when you read it, you will understand how nobody, and the senators don't generally pay attention to it. They find one junior senator, usually give them the honor. You read Washington's address, and then they go off and do their, do their thing. Um, don't listen to it. But, but there is an homage there to this important speech fundamental speech. It's, I think it speaks directly to so many issues that are plaguing us today. So, you might, we could talk about that. We talk about his farewells in that way. We could talk about his, um, uh, well, I'm not even going to say what we could talk about anymore. You're, always, you're already wondering what's on the floor. It sounds better than what's, what's I left. So, let's talk about the, I want to talk about the farewell, the ending of Ameri the American Revolution, how he ended the American Revolution, because he did it in such a way that set about everything else that's to come. So much of American history is established because of the way George Washington ended the American Revolution. Not his presidency. I submit his presidency is set up because of what happens during, during the Revolution. So, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to go to the American Revolution and talk about it uh, today instead of the other things that I, that I mentioned um, I could uh, talk about. I want you to go back to the last two years of the American Revolution. 1782, 1783. This is a period of time where uh, one of his biographers, Joseph Ellis, this is an old enough crowd that most of you will remember this. Some of these young law clerks here may not remember this, but uh, the rest of you will. You'll get the reference, probably. Um, his uh, biography, Joseph Ellis, called this period the last temptation of Washington. So you guys are old enough to remember in the 90s there was a film, The Last Temptation of Christ. Right, that's what he's playing off of. Maybe not. I'm seeing blank stairs. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm the only one old enough to remember that. Uh, but that's what he's playing off of um, when he says it's the last ten this is the period of the last temptation of Washington. It's not really the case. Washington can be tempted, and would, uh, he would be faced with things that would tempt most of us uh, throughout the rest of his, uh, his life. But it's, it's a, good, uh, a good little hook to be uh, thinking about anyway. We should go back, we should pause, we should remember this period, we should remember and be thankful to Washington for his virtue and be grateful for his leadership. Think about it, he had defeated an empire, he had the charisma and the command of an emperor, 
His men would have crowned him and crossed our Rubicon at the sound of his voice. Seems to me we lightly dismiss, I lightly dismiss through most of my life, the idea that Washington could have been offered a crown, could have been the new monarch of America. I dismissed it. I thought it was like the, um, the cherry tree. I hate to disabuse you of this, but I'm sorry. He never really cut down his dad's cherry tree. Um, that's just the story made up um, by Parson Weems. And I think, you know, I approached life when I was a little, from the time I was a little kid, thinking, yeah, laughable. He was never offered a, to be the king of America or something, right? I think we should stop and think about that. We should actually marvel at it. Because whether he was or not was offered a crown, was offered to be king, he could have demanded it. Who would have stood in his way? But the fact was, there were movements afoot in America to make him the new monarch, the new dictator. Uh, and say dictator, I mean in a Roman way, uh, which is uh, actually a good term. Um, a, uh, but give him ultimate power um, to build a new nation. In 1782, during this period I'm talking about, there is a colonel named Louis Nicola. And I remember when I found this letter, being so stunned by it, and my having my, you know, my dismissing of all this kind of shattered at this moment. But Louis Nicola wrote to Washington in 1782, um, telling Washington of efforts that he was part of within the officer corps to, in fact, do just what we were talking about, to make him uh, the new, uh, the new um, to crown him, make him the new monarch of America. Washington's rebuke of Nicola was furious, it was swift, and it was sharp. In fact, Washington sent the message back to Nicola, a letter, and sent it with two armed guards and told them to stand over him and make sure that he reads the letter before you're returning. Um, Louis Nicola, in the end of the day, wrote, one, two, three apology letters uh, to Washington over it. One of the things that Washington told him was that nothing, nothing he experienced at the very bottom of the, uh, the, the worst days of the war was worse than receiving his letter and knowing that anyone was thinking about such a thing um, in the, among, his, uh, among his officer corps. A temptation that would have been gotten the best of almost all conquering generals before him. Washington passed the test of Republican leadership. But when the war was well won and the peace treaty was signed, Washington did not spike the ball. He didn't do an end zone dance. Look, I'm a Steeler fan, people. I, I, I gave you football. Probably there's a lot of Bengal fans here, I assume. Is that for the Steelers back there? God bless. All right. Wow, I knew this would be a friendly audience, Bridget. You, you did all right. Well, it was three of us, but nonetheless, or four of us. There's one over here, too, so four of us in the room. Uh, isn't it confusing for us to live in this world where the Bengals are going to the Super Bowl, people? <laughs> I don't know what to make of it. This is, yeah, that's why I've been so confused. Um, but Washington didn't spike the ball. Um, he didn't... Um, he didn't celebrate. What he did was set about ending the war properly, ending that enterprise properly. And he did things that he gets no credit for today. He did things like begin, I think, intellectually, morally, to, to prepare the very foundations of Republican government. Um, for, um, for America. For instance, I don't have time to talk about all of them, but uh, in November of 1783, uh, 70, uh, he delivers an address to his soldiers. And it's very interesting because what he's doing in it, um, it's November 1783. If you're taking notes and want to go look it up, you don't have to look this one up. It's not that important, but it's, but it's somebody like me it is. What he's doing is, in this address, his farewell to his soldiers is he's not, you know, celebrating. What he's doing is attempting to turn their minds, to turn their, mi their, their eyes, their minds, their heads around 
from the, what, the enterprise that they've been a part of, war, and all the things that go with war, to turn them back around to look at civilian life. And civilian life, not like they inherited before they entered the war, but a new world, a new civilian life, a new country. And so he explains to them and tries to inspire them about the, the, the economic challenges to come and the opportunities to come and what America is going to be like and the leadership that America needs from them in their families and in their communities and in their politics when they get back to, uh, to their families. Washington begins to turn an army of warriors into virtuous Republican citizens before sending them back into, uh, uh, into the lifeblood of the nation. And then the great moment happens, the greatest moment happens, on December the 23rd, 1783, a day that I submit to you should be a national holiday of some sort. I know it comes a little close to a couple of other um, pretty important holidays. Um, but December 23rd, 1783, is a day that we should all remember, we should commemorate, because it's the day where George Washington did the almost unthinkable. Almost the unthinkable. The conquering general, the man who defeated an empire, laid down his sword. He gave over his commission, and in, uh, in his words... At that ceremony, he demonstrated humility, incredible humility, thanking Providence for victory and America's independence. He doesn't brag about his own exploits. He doesn't proclaim his own greatness. He asks for God to look after the country and its leadership and says, quote, simply this, having finished the work, having finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action. And then he used his actions, his symbolic leadership, he used his actions to sink a very profound and important precedent into the American Republic. He made it clear that no man, not even one as great as he was, stood above the elected officials of the Republic. Washington solemnly bowed to show his respects to Congress, and then they, in turn, removed their caps, but did not bow back to him. And remember, he bows, he shows a humility in front of, and hands over his sword and his commission to, a bunch of largely incompetent politicians who had done little but frustrate him through the entire war. What a profoundly important ending and a farewell. His actions, we look back at that now, okay, who cares, Greg? Uh, no big deal. Go back to 1783 because those actions, what he did that day, absolutely shook the world. This is why George III, King of England, said before, when, when rumors circulated, got to England, that Washington was going to resign his commission and go home, George III laughed and said, yeah, if he does that, he's the greatest man in the world. And he did. And he was the greatest man in the world. Jonathan Trumbull, the, uh, the great painter, was in London when word reached to London that Washington had actually done what, uh, what I just said he did. This is how Jonathan Trumbull um, captured the reaction in London. He says this, and I quote, "'Tis a conduct so novel, so inconceivable to people who, far from giving up powers they possess, are willing to convulse the empire to acquire more." They were confused. Who does such a thing as this? Well, this is the moment he became, I'm sorry, Steeler fans, block your ears because I have to we have to talk about this. This is where he became, Washington became our Cincinnatus. This is where Washington became the man so virtuous, so patriotic, that he conquered his country's enemies, and instead of taking power, instead of taking wealth, he gave up his sword, he gave up his army, 
and he went home. I felt like when I was ripping things and throwing them on the floor today, I felt like, well, I feel like a, a, a late night, if you're, if you're up at night, you know, you got these pitch men selling us uh, air fryers until, you know, whatever. Um, but it used to be Ginzu knives. You guys have to be old enough to remember Ginzu knives, right? Um, but wait, there's more, right? Uh, but wait, there's more. Uh, because before Washington, before Washington demonstrated uh, the greatness of, um, of giving up power in Annapolis. I want to go back one step further uh, to one more story to end my remarks uh, today. Don't get excited. It's a long story, so. Um, but still, it's just one more. I want to go back um, and introduce a uh, moment that I will argue is the moment where the um, Republic is saved at the end of the American uh, Revolution. So take a journey back with me to up to New York. We'll go. We'll go back. We'll go back in history. 1782, 1783. So again, those two years. You're already with me there. And we're gonna go up to the up on the Hudson in uh, New York um, to a place called Newburgh, um, New York. It's about 15 miles from West Point, and we'll go up there to Washington's um, camp because this is where Washington. Is has his army encamped. So we have won the war, right, at Yorktown. And if you're like me through most of my life, the story of my world is Yorktown's the end of the war, right? That's it, done. That's not it. It's not done. The most important thing, I think, is about to come, and that is how Washington ends this whole thing. So Again, I think the, the story I always remember, I've imagined at least in my head, that we defeat the Brits at Yorktown and then the Redcoats go home. They don't go home. They stay here. They stay here. They stay in New York. They're still occupying New York. They're still occupying South Carolina. Their troops are still here. Their ships are, off, are off, uh, offshore. And Washington says this. The king will push the war as long as that nation will find men or money admits not a doubt in my mind. Washington assumed if they showed weakness, if they blinked, the war would be back on. We had no peace treaty. The peace treaty, the Treaty of Paris was being negotiated, but that took, a, it took months after months after months to get there. And yet the British stayed here. So what Washington had to do, incredible challenge. It's an incredible challenge to keep an army together when you're fighting an enemy. Now imagine you're keeping an army together, there's no enemy to fight. You think you've won the war. And, but they can't go home. You can't go home to your wives. You can't go home to your kids, your farms. He had to keep them in garrison in New York, just biding their time, just waiting. And to add to that, those incompetent bureaucrats, not bureaucrats, politicians in the Continental Congress weren't paying the bills. Okay, so I want you to get a picture of this, what's happening in this situation. You've got an unhappy army that wants to go home. You've got an enemy still hanging around looking for weakness, waiting for weakness. And you've got Congress not paying the bills. So you've got, you've got soldiers not getting paid. You've got soldiers starving, getting hung, going hungry. You've got them without clothes, uniforms to wear. The horses are starving and they're eating them. It's a very, very difficult time. And again, almost none of us know anything about it. This is what Washington wrote to Major General Armstrong, and I quote, The army, as usual, are without pay and a great part of the soldiery without shirts. And though the patience of them is equally threadbare, the states seem perfectly indifferent to their cries. The soldiers were desperately hungry. Again, animals were starving. It was a terrible situation. Washington dispatched a couple of officers to go to Congress and plead with them and tell them the situation. One of the, here's one of their lines that they, they reported. Quote, We have borne all that men can bear. Our property is expended. 
our private resources are at an end. They met with both James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. I know because of the Hamilton musical, nobody needs an introduction to Alexander Hamilton anymore. But let me tell you, I like, love the play, um, thanks to, I only got to see it thanks to uh, those uh, uh, incredibly talented and generous uh, Bush boys um, who took me. Um, but Hamilton is no hero in the story, this story here. Hamilton, in fact, wrote to Washington on February 13th to say this. He said, hey, you know, maybe a little moderate revolt of the officers, if kept within bounds, if kept within bounds, may actually prove helpful in persuading, quote, the weak minds of Congress. And he wasn't alone in Scott's scheming. But pause there for a moment. Hamilton was Washington's great, maybe greatest advisor. Hamilton now is in Congress, but he had been. If Washington would have listened to Hamilton at this moment, how would American history be different? If Washington would have led a literal moderate revolt against the civilian government, how would our history have unfolded differently? I submit to you, extremely differently. So, Washington, or Hamilton was not alone in that in those scheming. Fortunately, Washington was uh, more prudent and more Republican than his, uh, his former aide. Washington knew well, of course, the depths of discontent, but would have no scheme in pressing the hand of the civilian government. He replied despairingly to Hamilton of what he called the forebodings of evil within the camp, which he felt, quote, may be productive of events which are more to be deprecated than prevented but then he said, still, I am not without some hope. He then warned Hamilton that I quote, and I love this, the army, an army is, are not, our soldiers are not mere puppets, and an army is, and I quote, a dangerous instrument to play with. On March the 11th, the crisis comes to a head when conspirators within the camp circulate a, a, um, a summons, uh, an anonymous summons, to have a meeting of the officer corps where they, can re where they can air their grievances and decide on an action to get uh, the money uh, that they, are, uh, they deserve. And then a second anonymous summons was circulated in the camp. This one really, the first one got Washington's attention, the second one made him furious because it included a not-too-veiled um, not warning, uh, and I quote here from that second summons, to suspect the man who would advise to more moderation and longer forbearance. They're talking about Washington. This is within the officer corps, a warning against Washington himself. Well, what would you do in a situation like this? It's a very desperate situation. Washington immediately sent out orders that he and he alone had the power to call a meeting of the officer corps. But then, he did an extraordinary thing. He called a meeting of the officer corps. He called a meeting of the officer corps, and he set it for, this always sends little shivers down my spine, he sends it, sets it for March the 15th. The Ides of March. Right? So you know what happened in the eyes of March? One other great military leader, when his, his buddies stabbed him in the back. How are we doing on time? We're fine? Okay. Um, I don't know why that was in Washington's mind or not, but Washington knew the history of Rome. They all knew the history of Rome. It's foundational to what we are at the founding was looking back at Rome. So I have to wonder, I have to assume he knew the eyes of March. Um, what they would be. Then he wrote to Hamilton, and he said, uh, he urged Hamilton, he says, you have got to move. You've got to move quickly. You've got to move very quickly. We are in a crisis here. And he says, if you don't, if the government doesn't act, if it doesn't, government doesn't act quickly, it will, and I quote, plunge the country into a gulf of civil horror from which there might be no receding. These are desperate, desperate times. 
And then the actions of that day on March 15th unfold as if they were produced for the stage. And I submit to you, again, that other lecture I'll give someday, a couple of years from now, I think they were. Um, they were put on as if they were be, uh, would be a play. 500 officers assemble on March the 15th, shortly before noon, at a place called the Temple of Virtue. Can't make that up either, that's true. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a new, newly built building at Newburgh um, where uh, the, Masons, uh, the Masons met. They also had church services and things, but um, they called it a temple with the, uh, with the Masons. Uh, and what would become, maybe, rich irony, Washington had Horatio Gates, General Horatio Gates, uh, preside over the, uh, over the meeting. I do not have an opinion before you ask me whether Horatio Gates was really a lead conspirator. I have no opinion on that, and we'll offer none now. Um, but nonetheless, rumors have circulated for 200 years that he may have been one of the leading conspirators, and Washington puts him in charge of the meeting. It's unclear whether Washington's going to show up. It's unclear the agenda for the meeting. No one seems to know. It seems to be that some of these officers are arriving thinking they are there for the moment when history turns. They are there when a new monarch is, uh, uh, is, uh, is crowned, when the army decides to move on Congress. They're there for that moment. Many don't seem to confuse what is, what's going to happen. We don't, uh, we don't know. But at precisely noon, at precisely noon, the doors open, the double doors in the back of the Temple of Virtue open, and in strides George Washington. He walks slowly, silently, and deliberately to the podium. His very presence, his dignity, and his strength strike to, to, or serve to strike the souls of his men. This is no, this is really hard to get a modern audience to understand. This is no mere mortal. This is no flawed politician. This is Washington. This is His Excellency. This is the Commander-in-Chief. This is the man who defeated an empire. This is the father of his country. He is not called the father of his country because he was president, by the way. Uh, I've discovered, uh, actually, in German, in, uh, in Pennsylvania Dutch country, a uh, song uh, that referred to him as the father of his country in 1775. Believe it or not, 1775. So he is the father of his country. Uh, Native Americans called him the most favored of heaven uh, because uh, so many of them shot at him and missed um, over the years, miraculously. We could tell that story, too. That's a great story. Maybe not for church, but maybe... Uh, great stories um, here. Anyway, he begins by apologizing. He apologizes for appearing in person. That is not, this is not his uh, modus operandi. This is not how he handles things. But the gravity of the situation demanded that he be there in person. And he began his remarks by dressing them down. We won't have time to walk through that, this whole address. Um, you can read it, it's, uh, find it all over the web, the New Newburgh, uh, his Newburgh address. Frankly, it's not worth reading, I don't think, unless you have me talking through, through it with you. It's just not very good, it's kind of clunky uh, for the modern ears. But what he does is begins by dressing them down. Gentlemen, by an anonymous summons, an attempt has been made to convene you together. How inconsistent with the rules of propriety. How unmilitary and how subversive of all good order and discipline. Let the good sense of this army decide. And then he goes on to talk about all of what they've gone through and that the honor that they've built over these years. Do they really want to throw this away? Are they really in this game for money? Are they really in this to you know, grow their own wealth and things? Or are they in it for a higher, higher causes? And then he ends with this. And he says to them, if you resist now, if, this is a great temptation, I get it. If you resist now, this is what, and he's talking, he's talking about you folks and me, and uh, so you will know how we have failed, how we have failed in this. But this is what he promises them. If they resist, 
You will give one more distinguished proof of unexampled patriotism and patient virtue, rising superior to the pressure of the most complicated of sufferings. And you will, by the dignity of your conduct, afford occasion of posterity to say, that is us. He's promising them, you and I are going to remember this moment. Obviously, we don't. Um, until this morning, when I put this talk together, I said, oh, yeah, that happened. We don't remember it, but he promises them that we will. This is his promise. We will remember them at this day, this moment. And we will say, when speaking of the glorious example you have exhibited to mankind, this is what we should say, had this day been wanting, the world had never seen the last stage of perfection to which human nature is capable of attaining. That's pretty high praise that we owe. He says we owe, we'll owe them if they do. But in case he hasn't made the case yet, he has a letter in his pocket, and he pulls the letter from his pocket. It's a letter from a member of Congress pledging their, their promise to, uh, to work with due diligence to get them everything that they, uh, that they deserve. He pulls the paper out. He unfolds it. He starts to read. He starts to stumble over the writing. He's halting. He's stumbling over the reading. And then he reads, reaches into his, uh, his waistcoat, and he pulls out a pair of spectacles. Anyone ever seen a painting of George Washington with glasses? No. His men didn't either. Because he was, I don't say of his flaws, he, was, he had a lot of vanity. Uh, there's a lot of pride uh, in George Washington. He puts on the glasses and says, Gentlemen, you must forgive me, for I have grown not only gray, but nearly blind in the service of my country. He finishes the letter, puts his uh, glasses back in his waistcoat, and just silently walks off. The accounts of what happens in that room are, are really stunning. These men, these, these warriors, begin to weep. Tears are dripping down these heroes' cheeks from what they've just witnessed. They are shamed by the moral superior of, what they, what they, uh, of George Washington and what they just saw. He walks out. Eventually, an officer stands up to break the silence and offers a... Um, uh, offers a, uh, <laughs> now I'm struggling over the word, uh, see I've got so emotional myself I've forgotten the word, whatever the heck the word is, uh, offers something, a resolution, offers a resolution uh, that they will pledge uh, their, uh, their allegiance to, uh, to Washington and appreciate, uh, appreciate his leadership and will continue to follow him. Uh, that passes unanimously. And then another stands up and says, we must also offer a, uh, a resolution to Congress, uh, supporting Congress and knowing that we will, telling them we will be patient and that, uh, and that we know they will, pay their, they will pay their bills. That passes as well. The crisis, uh, the crisis is over. The plot has been, uh, has been neutralized. The, the uh, civilian control of the military is preserved. The army would bide its time, would bide uh, its time until real peace. Peace came, and in that moment, we took an incredibly important step forward to our tradition of civilian control of the military. In the ending of the war, and the things that I just talked about and, and more, Washington, I submit to you, changed the world. Refusing power, refusing the crown, teaching military deference to civilian authority, no matter how incompetent that level of, uh, of authority may be, voluntarily resigning his position and retiring from public life. These acts, which seem so basic today because we are, have been able to take them for granted, they shook the world in 1783. We refer to Washington as our Cincinnatus as I said, his officers went on to form the, the Society of the Cincinnati. 
Yes, I know, we're going to have a Super Bowl with the Cincinnati Bengals in it. I still don't understand that, but I will be rooting for you, Bengal fans, so, because who could root for something from Los Angeles, for crying out loud, so I will be rooting for you. But a major city in the United States is named Cincinnati. Why? Because George Washington did, in our world, an act that almost no one but the great Roman general Cincinnatus had done, and that 2,000 years, 2,000 years before Washington did it again. He won a war, he liberated a nation, and then instead of taking power, he ended the war by going home to his farm, and by doing so, he changed the world. Napoleon Bonaparte in his jail cell was said to cry out, they wanted me to be another Washington. It was like, what, what the heck? Nobody does that. Nobody gives up power. Uh, well, Washington's example taught the men of the Philadelphia Convention that there was hope. There was at least one man who could be entrusted with power and who might set the precedence for Republican exec a Republican executive unlike the world had ever seen before. They created the American presidency with its relatively vague language and then entrusted that he would create the precedence that would last the ages. He set in motion the precedence that the military takes orders from the civilian president, whether they agree with those decisions made by the president or not. He set in motion the cultural expectations that fill in the blanks of the Constitution. From his own retirement, from the presidency after two terms, down to the general officers today in our own time who give a sharp salute and accept the military decisions of presidents with which they disagree, these have worked tolerably well, I offer today, to give us a Republican political system based on that eternal tension between order and liberty. With a little nod to the Robinsons on order and liberty. So as you think about your own careers, as you think about your own lives, as you think about your own projects you're involved in, your own leadership challenges, my suggestion is to you that remember how you leave a place is going to be very important. Your farewells may determine how you're remembered. It may determine the future success of the operation, the organization that you, you care about. Leave it stronger than you found it. As you continue to, as good American citizens, to think about the constitutional order that is ours, I hope you'll remember the father of it all, the man who was the revolution, who secured the peace, who presided over the Constitutional Convention, who accepted the presidency, who first enacted the Constitution, and then who voluntarily left office once again, setting us numerous precedents that we should remember and be grateful for down to the current hour. I have no idea how long I've spoken, so I apologize if I've gone too long, but thank you for your patience. Do we... <clears throat> If we have time, I'd be glad to take as many questions as you have, or thoughts, or objections, or yells. I have a question. I'll bring you the microphone. Yeah, clearly uh, what Washington did, and, and you did a great job of uh, demonstrating how unique uh, an example he set. Fast forward a couple of years, looking back at the 20th century, we had various, and, and the 21st as well, we've had various presidents that have left differently. Yeah. Where, where would you put in rank one or two in a positive sense, and perhaps some thoughts on others that may have done it a little bit differently? Wow. You want me to hate, half the group to hate me now. See, I had them all in my hand there for a moment. Yeah. Um, a great question, actually, and I think partly by you asking the question, you probably know what I think about some negative things uh, of ways to go out, um, so I won't talk about that. Um, but I think, you know, if I would have given you my warm-up to the speech that I threw on the floor, 
uh, then you would have uh, you know, got a little bit more, because I would have talked a little bit more about his statesmanship and how he carried himself and how he acted uh, and the lessons that he tried to, uh, um, to, um, uh, to enact bro more broadly than what I just talked about today, which I think would go to that. Um, I think for my, and this may be because I, I grew up in the 80s, um, and so my formative first president was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, and I'm, I've always been very interested in the symbolic aspects of the office. Um, this is really hard to, you know, over the last six, seven years, whatever, a few years. Um, it's very hard to care about, uh, to be someone like me and care really about how a president conducts themselves in, in um, uh, the optics of it. So like Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan never once went into the Oval Office without a suit coat on. Never once. Now fast forward to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton used to wear sweatpants, and we also know other things that happened in that Oval Office. But he used to wear sweatpants and have pizza parties in there. Now that may be no big deal, who cares? But to me, that sort of act is, is kind of important. So I look back, I, and I cut my teeth on Reagan as a, let's call it, oh, you're Episcopals here, a high church, a high church presidency. I'm a Methodist, so we're kind of low church. I get that. I'm with you, I'm with you guys. If my dad wasn't a Methodist minister, I'd be an Episcopal. But, um, so I, I guess that's the way to say this. I appreciate a high church presidency. Reagan was that, for sure. And the way Reagan left in two ways. One is after he knew he had, he had Alzheimer's, the letter to the country. I mean, if that doesn't make you just weep to read that letter, how beautiful that letter is, a beautiful gift to us. Um, I think that's, uh, that is the case. But he also, um, he also finishes his presidency in a, uh, uh, in a way, I think, in a dignified, disciplined way. And he gives a farewell address. Uh, a lot of presidents have, have done this kind of thing, a farewell address, leaving behind an inspiration and some warnings to America. Uh, as well from his, from his time. So I'll, I'll, I'll forgive me for not going delving too much in because we could just beat up some people pretty badly by Washington's example. So uh, I don't want to do that. Maybe we should. <laughs> Anybody else? From your experience, if history is a predictor of the future, where do we go from here? Well, where we go is back. Um, so I will, I will send you back to Washington's farewell address. Um, go home and read it, 1796. I've been thinking about starting a 1796 project. Um, and here's what I really have in mind for it. One of the things that disturbs me most in America right now, there's a lot of things that disturb me a, a lot in America, uh, particularly is the quality of our judiciary. I'm just kidding, Judge Bush. Uh, what, really, um, what really bothers me is the depth of the divisions in America today, the party divisions. Washington predicted all. He saw it coming. And, uh, and so his farewell address is in part a warning against um, political parties. And I think it's not just against the establishment of political parties, and we, that's sort of... Uh, they, the founders all knew, essentially, that political parties were very dangerous um, and, um, and, and may become the end of, uh, end of democratic government. And they tried to build in some safeguards. Washington tried to teach safeguards, but it pretty quickly we, we developed into a, into a two-party system. It's not naturally baked into the cake, so I'm not, I'm not attacking the system necessarily. What Washington, though, warns us about is the constant is the, um, what we see our place at, in today as where, being either a blue shirt or a red shirt, red jersey or blue jersey, and seeing everything through a partisan lens. Washington sees that coming and warns against it. And I think that is a place that I would go back to, to try to get us to stop, to actually listen to one another, to actually listen to alternative perspectives, uh, to give people a little bit of a benefit of the doubt, a break here that maybe they're not evil um, because they have a different political view than you, um, and to have that kind of conversation. I would go back to that as one place to start in Washington. If we go back to that farewell address, I will also say Washington, um, 
warns in that farewell address. This is actually amazing. I remember doing this talk, a talk, not this talk, a talk like it on the, on the farewell address um, in um, 2018 or so, I think. Uh, so if you remember back in, the, back in, the, in those, those years, uh, um, President Trump's years, we were every day roiled by investigations about how the Russians were influencing or not the elections. Remember that? For years we had to hear this stuff. But you read the farewell address and you will be, you will drop, your jaw will drop to the floor when Washington tells you. Washington tells you the thing you have to be aware of in the country is foreign governments interfering in our elections. And then he warns, it's like both sides, they gore both oxes here, and then he says that you have to be ruthlessly on guard, ruthlessly on guard against foreign involvement in our politics. But then he says, you also have to be ruthlessly, he doesn't say nonpartisan, but let's say, I'll say nonpartisan, ruthlessly nonpartisan in it. And that is, if it's your guy or if it's the other guy, you have got to be always looking at, as an American, looking at an enemy abroad, not as, oh, well, it's okay because the enemy's helping my guys. That make, that makes sense. Anyway, that's one thing that got me in, in all of that. Uh, you know, if we were 2018, I would say, uh, yeah, let's let's spend an hour talking about uh, about what Washington is saying um, saying there. He also says um, the very foundation, the pillar stone there, of the future of the American Republic has to be based on morality and virtue. And then he says, and this shock modern ears. But then he says, you cannot have, you will never have morality and virtue without religion. So the very foundation of America has to be religious. And of course, he doesn't, when he's saying religion, he means Christian. Christian. Um, anyway, so I go back to that. There's a whole lot of lessons there that you can pull forward. But I think our only way, we can't, because if you think about the future, you know, we're, we're trying to step out and make a better future. There is no such thing. The no, future doesn't exist. There's nothing out there. We can't look to the future. There's nothing there. You've got to look to lessons of the past. So our answers are going to be in the past somewhere, in the mistakes and in the, in the good things that have happened, and try to pull that forward. I know it's not an agenda uh, to, to, to give for the, the steps forward, but I think our presidents as well, if our presidents would study Washington, we would be a whole lot better off. If we would study Washington and elect people and hold people to that standard, we'd be a whole lot better off. And we're not, not going to be Washingtons, but they can at least be approach it. Anything else? I've talked your ear off today. You've got important lives. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your patience. Thanks for inviting me, Bridget, Caroline, everyone. Thank, thank you all. Thank you so much, Gary. That was wonderful. Oh, I thought talk. you were just talking to me. We we're just on time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all so much for coming. Don't forget, first Tuesday every 